the city of St. Louis, you're listening to the Don't Push Pause podcast with your hosts, Justin Johnson and Lindsay Reber. Welcome to the podcast. Welcome back, everybody. Hello, Justin. Hey, Lindsay. So we've got a treat for everybody today. If you are a fan of this movie, Teen Wolf, I'll have to admit, we do a lot of movies that we grew up on. There's a lot of nostalgia attached to this podcast. And this was a movie that was pure nostalgia for me, I think in in a way, because I loved this movie as a little kid. But when we were deciding whether or not to do this film, I don't think I'd seen it since I was a kid. And so I had to rewatch it to make sure, like, how much nostalgia is going to be attached to it, which there was a ton. But, like, is this a movie that I'd still want to do? Has it held up? And I was really surprised at how well this movie held up over the years. And it's still like this very simple, very pleasant, very sweet little film um, that deals with, you know, changes of being a teenager and, like, trying to fit in and learning to believe in yourself and all these little things wrapped up in a very pleasant little picture that uh, happened to be very successful. I think because one, it is a pretty decent movie, but also because of the juggernaut that was Back to the Future and Michael J. Fox's career. The discussion for this movie came up a little while ago because it was a couple of our listeners. uh, If you're out there, if you're listening, Juan, Kirsten, Jennifer, all three of these people that uh, listen to our podcast came up to me individually and said, what about Teen Wolf? especially one. And I was like, you know what? Maybe it's been so long since I've seen it. And I know I need to revisit it. And I'm glad Justin that upon your revisit, you kind of felt the same way that I did. And honestly, looking back on this, I thought it was going to play a lot more harsh than what it does. Um, It holds the same amount. I mean, a lot of nostalgia built into this movie for me. And I was also surprised at going back and watching it, like how burnt in my brain this movie was. I could watch it once and be like, oh yeah, this is when this happens totally. And I haven't seen it in easily 15 years. We also uh, are coming off of two very, very intense, dark movies, uh, Seven and American Psycho. So we're trying to think of something to lighten the mood a little bit here at the podcast, as well as, you know, all the kids are going back to school. We're like, what's a going back to school picture? And this is our Teen back Wolf. To yeah, this movie. is our back to school movie, Teen Wolf. <laughs> Uh, And also, too, Michael J. Fox has been in the news quite a bit. Uh, He had that documentary that came out that is very open about his disease. It's very open about his career. It's very much him like talking to the camera about everything in his life and in retrospect of everything that's happened to him in his career. I was kind of shocked at how brief Teen Wolf was mentioned in that documentary. But nonetheless, you know, we'll be talking about Michael J. Fox quite a bit in this episode and we'll shine more light on this film since that documentary sort of pushed it aside a little bit. I'm glad you bring that up because in research for this too, I found, I mean, obviously a ton on Back to the Future, which came out the same year. We'll definitely get into that. But no interviews at all regarding Teen Wolf, at least that were easily accessible, uh, you know, in in trying to siphon them out through uh, just, you know, searching on the internet. But I feel like the, that probably has a reason. This was, for those of you who don't know, this was an independent movie. And we'll get into the production. Um, of course, we'll talk about where this story came from, the writers. Michael J. Fox had a 
I mean, he's the reason that this movie was even created. Um, we'll talk, I'm sure we'll hit on some of our favorites in the cast. Justin, do you have a favorite in the cast? Styles. I mean, I You're think a Styles man. I'm a huh? style, and I, even okay. when I was a kid, I remembered right away. It was like, <laughs> oh yeah, Styles is like the cool friend is always ready to party, but like is able to like peer pressure you into doing something that you normally wouldn't do. But then once it's over, you're like, oh man, I had the best night of my life. Do you have, if you don't, I think you need his shirt. That's like, what are you looking at? Dick nose. Yeah. I think you need that shirt. There's just so many things to talk about that are fun with this movie. So after our discussion on Teen Wolf, we'll go to our picks of the week, which we both did Michael J. Fox movies. So this is kind of like a all encompassing Michael J. Fox episode. Uh, What was your pick of the week? Mine is one that I don't know. I feel like I've mentioned it in passing on the podcast, but you definitely know this movie is one that I've made fun of or made light of uh, many times in in private. But I recently did a rewatch about 2.30 a.m. one night and was like, why am I being like so harsh on The Secret of My Success? Because for all of its faults, you know what? It's a fine movie. There's a lot of questionable things that I can't wait to talk about. Uh, but The Secret of My Success is my pick of the week. All right. And what was yours, Justin? My pick was uh, there was a very small amount of time. It was about two-year period where Michael J. Fox was going to just do really dark, serious roles. Oh, yeah. Um, and he did Casualties of War. He did Bright Lights, Big City, mm-hmm. where he's a big cokehead. The movie I chose was Light of Day. Uh, written and directed by Paul Schrader, who is no stranger to dark characters. Uh, he wrote Taxi Driver, Raging Bull. Several movies I've done as a pick of the week have been Paul Schrader movies like Blue Collar. Mm-hmm. And this is an interesting movie, especially when we're talking about Michael J. Fox's career, because I don't necessarily think he was like the right fit for this movie. But because of that, it almost makes the movie more interesting because you're kind of seeing a persona that's different from this actor that you're you, it's just really hard to to strip away the images of him as Marty McFly or him as a character in Teen Wolf. And I think that affected some of these more serious films that he tried to do later in his career. And then I think he went back, pivoted back to like light comedy, um, which, you know, he excels at. So I, I figured I'd spotlight a movie that's lesser known and not the easiest one to track down like uh, I did find out that someone did upload a version of light of day to YouTube but I um, had it in my laser disc collection so I watched uh, light of day on laser disc if you can believe that and will you tell our listening audience who also co-stars in this film too yeah, co-star I was going to save it for Oh, okay. I don't want. I don't want to give away too much because then when I do my pick <laughs> okay, of the week, then let's let's not ruin okay, it. Okay, let's, let's not, not ruin, ruin it. it. Okay, okay. Just hang on. Okay. Hang on, listeners. You're pressuring. You're like Styles right now, pressuring me to give away all my pick of the week information. <laughs> so after our picks of the week, as always, we'll get into our Murray moment. But before we get into our first clip from Teen Wolf, Lindsay, can you give us a brief lowdown? I know the title kind of says it all with a movie like this, but your interpretation of what Teen Wolf is about. Well, Scott Howard has never been the most popular guy in high school. Sure, he's on the basketball team, has a core group of friends, but something within him wants to be different, something more than what life has dealt him. But being a werewolf wasn't what Scott had in mind. After his dad confesses that lycanthropy runs in their family, Scott discovers that not only is he an overnight grade-A student, but most importantly, he's now an all-star basketball player. His unlikely bestie, Styles 
seizes the opportunity to capitalize on this unlikely metamorphosis, catapulting Scott to massive popularity to the dismay of Scott's other friends, including Boof, his lifelong neighbor friend who secretly adores him. As his priorities change and his friends are now the kids who used to bully him, Scott begins to worry that his newfound high-class status in high school is based on being a freak novelty rather than the human version of Scott Howard. And it is amazing how quickly the tides turn for him. Like He (laughs) turns into a wolf and everybody's just like, yeah, we're just going to accept this wild, crazy thing that just happened and then go to embrace him so quickly you just need a hype man i guess yeah that's that's true that's what i needed in high school to be popular i just needed a hype man yeah damn it so (laughs) more credit to styles let's go to a clip from teen wolf we'll be right back we'll talk about it jeez louise scott can i come in ah no dad uh, no, I'm, uh, I'm doing something in here. I'll say. You may be surprised. Whatever it is, son, you can tell me. I'll understand. Oh, 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 no, Dad. Ah, oh, no, not this time. Scott Howard, this is your father speaking. Now open this door right this minute. Okay, Dad. You asked for it. An explanation is probably long overdue. An explanation? Jesus Christ, Dad, an explanation? Look at me. Look at you. It's not as bad as it looked. Wait a minute, wait a minute, Dad. You mean you knew about this? You knew about this and you didn't tell me? I was hoping I wouldn't have to. Sometimes it skips a generation. I was hoping it would pass you by. Well, Dad, it didn't pass me by. It landed on my face. What the hell am I going to do? Now, I think an argument could be made that the success of Teen Wolf solely lies on the shoulders of Michael J. Fox. And it's really hard to be on the other side of that because Back to the Future had come out and Michael J. Fox was like as hot as could be. And even though Teen Wolf was shot before Back to the Future, they released it post the success of Back to the Future. And so people knew Michael J. Fox's name. Uh, Even that poster of Teen Wolf, I remember, has like that same style that they would make of posters where it's painted and had like a similar look to the Back to the Future poster in some ways, stylistically. Michael J. Fox had a huge hit TV show, Family Ties at the time. Going back and watching Teen Wolf now several times, there's a lot more going on. It is like a really decent little script. It's a tight little movie that doesn't really go too far outside of its own world and also to the tonality of the movie. goes for something that's lighthearted, Um, there's a tiny bit of romance in there. There's a tiny bit of humor, but overall it's like a really nice story. They don't try to go too far with the history of werewolves. The effects are good and it's believable for the story, but I do like that this movie doesn't take a vicious side of the humor like American Werewolf in London or the Howling do this movie, comparing it to werewolf movies that came out during this time period. 
it decided to take a straightforward, like, we're going to keep it this nice story. We're not going to show somebody get murdered by the werewolf. He's not out killing people. He's very self-aware when he's the wolf. So it's a different kind of take on the werewolf movie. And I really like that about it. And also, I, you know, again, I like that it just, they were like, well, let's just make this little, nice little film with some good humor. And we have this charismatic person who's going to be in every scene. And I think it really, really works still to this day. Um, I find it an enjoyable watch. I never get bored. It's a very tight, you know, 90 minute movie, which uh, notoriously was such a great aspect about these 80s movies when you go back and watch them they never feel super bloated like a lot of movies today are that are this simple in story and before we dive into the story i do kind of want to point out that maybe this is a stretch but scott howard who's michael j fox and teen wolf and marty mcfly and back to the future i mean they're kind of the same guy um they're they're both not outcast, but not the most popular guy. Not a total slacker. Like they're they're good eggs. Like they're good kids, um, but they want for something more than where they are in life. And then something kind of freakish happens to both of them, and then they have to figure out how to how to reconcile that in their lives. And I I kind of love that, and don't think that. I mean, there's no way that these could have been derivative of each other. They just happened at the same time. So I think that. In a way, Teen Wolf and, and Back to the Future happening at the same time, which we'll get into, it makes for a great pairing. And certainly something that I don't think anyone didn't benefit from, which is nice. And you mentioned at the top of the episode that a lot of people don't know, this this was an independent film. This was distributed by a studio, which a lot of times movies are, but independently financed, uh, produced somewhat outside of the Hollywood studio system. I mean, there were skilled laborers that worked on the movie that knew what they were doing. It wasn't an indie crew where everybody's like straight out of film school, but it was a very low budget, $1.8 million, which, you know, was still, I mean, that's a lot for an independent film in the eighties, but still for a movie that was able to get a television star. Cause I mean, family ties was taking off and he was a breakout star of that show. And he had already done a couple small parts in some movies, uh, in the early eighties, but hadn't been the you know the marquee star the person that's going to be on the poster the reason why you're going to see the movie and even though he was a key player in this michael j fox didn't write this script this actually did come from two writers who uh, one was at least fresh out of film school like they were both in their early 20s like 23 jeff loeb and matthew wiseman were looking to make their way into being script writers in Hollywood and, and figuring out how to do it. And Jeff actually met with the president of Atlantic Racing Corporation, who's the company that put out Teen Wolf. They were around from 74 to 89 and were looking for writers and uh, a crew who, who could put out um, a high quality product for a low price. And this was especially important after the success of Valley Girl, which they made for well under a million dollars, I think. And that movie had a giant return. So Jeff met with the president of Atlantic and they said, okay, 
go out and bring us back a couple different ideas and let's see if something rolls. So Jeff and Matthew, who worked out this really awesome dynamic of Jeff having ideas and Matthew actually being the one who wrote it out and then, you know, he'd give him the script and he'd give notes back and forth how a lot of writing teams do. Or, I mean, writing teams do it different ways, but it seemed like they had um, a good simpatico together. So they come back to Atlantic with 10 ideas and the one that was picked out of out of all of these um, to kind of their surprise was Teen Wolf. This, And I mean, they didn't pitch it as anything more than, well, it's this teenager and he's, you know, kind of half-assed at basketball and then he becomes a werewolf and is awesome at it that was pretty much the pitch and atlantic was like green light let's let's do it that's it these the the (laughs) them describing the story of the pitches for this movie (laughs) and all their different ideas reminded me of johnny depp and ed wood when he's pitching like his ideas like the ghoul goes west (laughs) dr acula you know yeah finally landing on something that's sounds ridiculous but someone's like no i could see that being you know a hit with kids i mean i can't imagine being 23 and someone saying yes go out and write this here's the catch though write it in three weeks and we're only going to give you four thousand dollars but i mean in 84 that sounds kind of great so that's what they do they crank the script out in three weeks using inspirations like werewolf movies and teen comedies of the time i think that there was a, a degree of wanting to fit into teen comedies of the time because they were so successful but they were also on the rise as far as werewolf movies i don't even really th- I mean, personally i don't think of teen wolf as a werewolf movie because it's it's not a horror movie although there are about five times when Teen Wolf does some growling and then the score underneath. It's kind of, it's a little freaky a few times in this movie, but I don't think of it as a horror movie. It's very much a teen comedy to me. So if you think about this movie as kind of a teen comedy about, um, I know growing up, I think I thought of this as adolescence and puberty and that sort of thing. And that's not actually what the writers were going for. I think looking back on it, I still see a little bit of that. But when I hear Jeff and Matthew talk about Teen Wolf being more centered around a father and son story, I'm like, actually, yes. And and I think you might only see that when you're a little bit older. Because um, as a kid, this was just about going to school, being bullied, growing up, being uncomfortable, hair where it wasn't there before. But as an adult, looking at it like, These are the things that we learned from our parents. And, you know, there are also superhero aspects to the story, too. There's a lot more involvement than I think I had realized when I was a kid. Yeah, I totally agree. And one thing that on this recent rewatch that really struck me is original for this movie setting itself, apart from a lot of 80s films of this time period, that it's not necessarily like a quote unquote nerd who's just trying to fit in, do whatever he can to like fit in he actually seeks is thinking about you know having existential crisis about like i i just don't want to be this basic person in this basic town in this basic school and go unnoticed you know not even like worrying about being bullied but just like i just want people to notice me hear my voice and what's wild is that that's something that's very relevant today you know and secondly it He's not, you know, he does fit in. He does have some good friends. He does have people that respect him. He does actually have people listen to him, but he wants more than that, you know, and that's not necessarily something that is a storyline in a high school movie. I mean, yeah. that's usually reserved for middle middle age 
mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> someone going through a crisis in their life or they've been working at a job too long. And they're like, I need a change. Or, you know, I've been married for 15 years or something. Yeah. He's Usually, not over there like with his glasses yeah, yeah, and nerdy it's, it's, in the corner. It, no and, friends. Yeah. And it's like, he hasn't really, he's only 18. He hasn't had time to like reflect on life yet. You know, yeah. he was, he's still a kid. So it was a little refreshing to see that be the storyline throughout. And then also, like you said, pairing with this movie about family and like, you know, his father revealing to him like, oh, this is a legacy. This isn't, you know, it's a curse and a blessing. And yet also having a little bit of that superhero aspect of like, you know, with power comes great responsibility type situation where, you know, he's like, I can use this for good or I can use it for self gain. And also too like, kind of showing a generational difference between his father's like, this is something we keep just to our own people. We don't like to talk about it. We definitely don't go around playing basketball and being like the star of the school while being the wolf. And so you do see that difference and that struggle between an older generation and newer generation and accepting who you are. And all of that compiled into just a really simple story of a kid who, you know, finds out he, he's a weirdo, becomes popular and then realizes that, you know, he's better off being himself, that he doesn't need to be the wolf to gain acceptance from people that he's fine just on his own and realizing that people like him for who he is, you know, not just because he's a werewolf. And, you know, going along with teen comedies and kind of the overall themes of Teen Wolf, the idea of popularity isn't something new to this genre at all. And certainly, you know, getting really popular and realizing everybody around you used to be your enemy and who am I now? That sort of thing wasn't necessarily new and certainly is a theme that continues on. But I think the addition of Styles and his uh, writing Scott's coattails on one, lifting his friend up, which is cool, and saying, you know, actually, I mean, in that scene where he calls him a fag and or he's like, you're not a fag, are you? as if that's worse than being a wolf. Um, And then he comes out, we'll say, as a werewolf to Styles. Um, It's kind of cool that he's accepting immediately, but then sees dollar signs in his eyes, which is an aspect that I don't think we see too much is the best friend taking advantage of his friend, but also he's not leaving him behind because that's his cash cow, um, but not really being supportive of his friend and who he is, which is the other side of, of like characters like Boof and Lewis, who are the ones on the sidelines that are like, Scott, who are you anymore, man? I don't yeah. even know you. When it's still relevant. I mean, 40 yeah. years later, if this movie was made today, he would, his styles would be monetizing yes. uh, the wolf on Instagram and that, yeah. you know, the wolf would be a, a influencer and, they, you know, I mean, it would be, hey, this is really cool. Hey, we're gaining popularity. We should be making some money off, you know, your popularity. Totally. And so, so I think it totally fits. And yeah, it, there's nothing very mean spirited about this. Even, I mean, there's a couple moments of going toe to toe with a bully or the rival team, but there's really nothing in the script, I think, that's mean spirited. Or if there was, they took it out of the drafts that ended up in, you know, on screen. I do like that. I do like that we have not just one friend, but we have Lewis, who's, you know, the quieter, shy friend, but there's a, you know, and then we have Boof, who is the traditional 80s Hollywood movie where no one sees how attractive she is (laughs) because she's a brunette. 
You know, I mean, she's absolutely gorgeous, but well, she's a brunette, is interested in Michael J. Fox character, but he doesn't see her you know, she's got in brown a physical hair. way. Yeah, she's got brown hair, obviously. Yeah. You uh. know, they didn't put glasses on her, at least. I mean, I think that that's what makes Boof a little different is yeah. that she's not a nerd. She's actually pretty self-assured and cool um, in, in her own way and really is just like she's unfazed. Well, she's a little bit jealous of uh, yeah. the blonde girl a little but bit. But since we're talking about Boof, can we take a moment to talk about the creating a character called Boof, mm-hmm. which is uh, – even when I was a kid watching this, I didn't. I thought it was a weird name, and I didn't like it. What was the writer thinking? I mean, I know they're young, but like, uh, you know, I, I, I get the idea of like, there's a list of like boring names, you know, Stacy, whatever. Sorry, Stacy's, but you know, what I mean, like, what was popular at the time? What yeah. was popular at the time and been used, you know, a million times, Heather or whatever. You know, my thought was, oh, maybe he was just like, yeah, hey, I just want to something that you're gonna remember because it's so unusual but there's like no explanation really in the movie was her born was her given name boof yeah and so (laughs) we actually found out you know in the research that the writer said where how the name came to be and i almost felt like more unsatisfied by the use of her name being boof than i was him explaining the reason why he created the name Boof. Which was pretty simple. Writer Jeff Loeb was in college and just, he said, just like kicking back somewhere on like a hangout on campus. And um, an attractive girl walked by him and he just said, kind of under his breath, almost in her direction, hey, want to go out sometime? But what the girl heard, I guess, was Boof or something. Boof was involved, like he called her Boof. And she turned around and was like, what did you call me? He's like, what? I just... Uh, I just asked if you wanted to go out and she said I thought you called me Boof he's like no I didn't but they did become a couple and they were boyfriend and girlfriend in college but it was a running joke to call each other Boof while they were dating it is a rather unsatisfying story but I like that there's at least a reason and it's important to those two people that was a cute thing between them i could see too being that young and i'm gonna slip this into this script because it's our thing or whatever dude i would totally Um, do that but you think after multiple rewrites someone (laughs) you know someone somewhere uh, but again this was financed outside the studio system even though there were producers and stuff but it's it's surprising to me that somewhere somewhere is like why don't we just change your name to like carol carol come on no one wants a carol in there sorry carols We'll get much more into characters and and our thoughts on everybody in this film. But the first one that we need to talk about and the whole reason why Teen Wolf went into production was the involvement of Michael J. Fox. Now, as Justin already said, Michael J. Fox had was in family ties since 1982. But when 84, when Teen Wolf was just a little baby of an idea, I think it was either like number 23 or 25 that family ties was in the national rankings at the time. And uh, this was when it was, you know, shows were serials and on once a week and it actually mattered who was tuning in every week. And Um, just to take a pause to say, yeah, like 20 to 30 million people tuning into these TV shows, which seems crazy now, you know, Mm -hmm. but there wasn't a lot on back then. So you'd have like a third of the country watching. Yeah. And even at that time in 84, it was gaining popularity, but it wouldn't reach the full like massive like number two in the rating success it would until like basically during the filming of Teen Wolf. So in late 84, Family Ties was switched to Thursday nights, which was still 
Uh, I mean, even back in, if you remember back in Friends days, Thursdays were like the big night for your sitcoms. That's when people were tuning in. Um, And 84 was the same thing. And Family Ties was moved to immediately follow The Cosby Show, which was the most popular TV show um, on at the time. Now, this would happen during production, but it was known that Michael J. Fox was an up-and-comer. If we're going to get someone who is known, but not a really you know, expensive celebrity to get for a low-budget film, going after a TV actor is not a bad idea. Especially at this time, TV actors weren't doing movies and vice versa. I mean, movie stars were not on TV at all. Certainly not how it is today. He kind of did this simultaneously throughout the 80s, like continued on his TV series while making movies. Yeah, Family Ties was on, I think, until 89. So the script was sent to Michael J. Fox and his agent, And it was definitely on their radar to keep bringing him up as a rising star, get him into movies. Um, His agent wasn't too crazy about the title. So that was one of the first things that the agent was like, we can't have, I want this guy to have a career. And I, you know, obviously I'm his agent. We can't have him in a movie called Teen Wolf. But it wasn't completely discouraging. After multiple meetings, his agent said, okay, Michael wants to do this. But the only way that this will work is if you make this work in the hiatus that Family Ties is taking because Meredith Baxter is pregnant and she's on her maternity leave at this time and you've got to shoot it in three weeks. If you can make that happen, then he'll do it and that's it. But as soon as Family Ties is back into production, he's done. Which, I mean, you know, I guess when you're a uh, low-budget production and, you know, you get the green light from Michael J. Fox and you're trying to shoot a movie for under a million dollars, you're like, hell yes, let's do this. And it's not like a poorly made movie by any means, but it looks like a movie that had like three weeks to shoot. Like you can tell that they, it was it was a rushed production. And I, I don't know um, how much we'll get into this. I mean, right, right now is a great time. I think it's rather ironic that the casting director, Paul Ventura, was brought in um, after even Michael J. Fox, like they were just going for Michael J. Fox. They brought him in because they thought, if we don't get Michael J. Fox, we need somebody else who can hold this movie. And ironically, it was Eric Stoltz who they were going after, which at the same time had just been cast for Back to the Future. It's just such a crazy crossover on how much Teen Wolf and Back to the Future, I mean, it's nuts. Like, Michael J. Fox wasn't able to do Back to the Future. Like, Steven Spielberg tried to get him, asked the producer of Family Ties, who he was friends with, like to slip him the script. And he just said, hey, it's not going to work. Family Ties is in production. (laughs) Like Back to the Future is going to take longer than three weeks like Teen Wolf. So Back to the Future went with Eric Stoltz. It's just nuts to me, like the crossover and how, I mean, poor Eric Stoltz didn't get either one of them. And I would wager to say most people that listen to our podcast probably are fans of Back to the Future, probably know that Eric Stoltz Worked on Back to the Future as the Marty McFly character for like six weeks before getting fired for not really getting the character down like he was playing it more serious and not as lighthearted. Wildly, I can totally see him being the character in Teen Wolf and playing that really well. I think he's really great and some kind of wonderful. And there's some similarities between those characters. And I could see him not working in Back to the Future, but I could see this character of Teen Wolf being a little more serious. But poor Eric Stoltz gets, (laughs) you know, just kind of left. I mean, 
not poor Eric Stoltz. He had a great he's, career. He's been he's tons fine. of stuff, and he made his he made his choices. You know, he <laughs> he made his creative he made, choices. He made his creative choices <laughs> that caused you know caused him to get dismissed from Back to the Future. But Back to the Future is so tied to this movie because during the production of Teen Wolf, they find out that hey, they want Michael J. Fox to be in this movie. Like they fired Eric Stoltz. He's been shooting for six weeks, which kind of unheard of for a big, huge, gigantic Hollywood movie. I mean, they'd already dumped millions of dollars into Back to the Future to like literally start from scratch with a new actor who's in just about every scene was kind of a shock for the crew of Teen Wolf. So they heard about this and they're like, they find out that Michael J. Fox is getting recast in that. And Back to the Future, he shot that way after he was done with Teen Wolf and Teen Wolf was totally completed. Um, but they, they saw that Back to the Future was going to be a big movie and Michael J. Fox being the star. In the show, Family Ties had already gotten better ratings. It had a better spot positioned after Cosby show. More people were seeing it. And so they're really, I mean, I think for someone who had to release a movie, I mean, seeing stars align and saying, why would we put Teen Wolf out before this movie breaks Michael J. Fox and makes him a huge like household name. And I think a lot th- that that's why, you know, we're bringing back to future up a lot, but it's so tied to this movie because yeah. the success of Teen Wolf and a, a tiny movie getting in front of so many people on so many screens after back to the future being the number one movie for like five or six weeks, it was out, it stayed at number one. And then Teen Wolf comes out and we'll talk about that more later but you know doesn't even make it to number one because still back to the future so many people are going to see it but he gets a number two spot because everyone's like oh yeah i want to see the new michael j fox movie and i remember this when i was younger i mean i was only six or seven when teen wolf came out but i remember it being such a thing of like oh man back to the future he's got this movie i was watching family ties at the time and you know he's on magazine covers i mean there was probably no bigger star at this moment as far as someone who's like under 30 than Michael J. Fox in 1985. Totally. And I checked the dates of when Michael J. Fox began to, you know, his popularity began to rise because of family ties and the production of Teen Wolf. And they said it because they they made a big deal about it in the documentary about Teen Wolf that Basically, in the first week, nobody knew who he was, and then there was a whisper of people recognizing him by week two, and then by week three of shooting, it was just wild, and people were noticing him everywhere, and it did, actually. The dates matched up as far as when he began to rise to popularity. So, I mean, in an essence, you can say it was Back to the Future, but it really, it was Family Ties that was yeah. why... Teen Wolf was able to be made. It also caused Teen Wolf. I mean, it raised Teen Wolf up and then back to the future. There was already this buzz built from these two and then Teen Wolf going, okay, I'm going to play on the back end of back to the future. It just kind of all snowballed together and made a lot of sense. But of course we need a steward of this ship. Um, We didn't have a director. There wasn't even actually a producer at the time when Michael J. Fox jumped aboard. Both writers and Michael J. Fox were the ones looking for a director. And it came down to really how uh, the different directors who they they watched their reels and did interviews, obviously. Um, It came down to how each one of them saw Teen Wolf, what the story was, what the genesis of the story. Some directors 
were taking it too seriously. It was all about otherness and bullying and wanting to take out some jokes, not making it as funny. And then other director choices wanted it to be a straight up slapstick teen sex comedy. And, you know, it was like taking the any type of seriousness um, out of it. And then there was Rod Daniel. He was a pretty successful TV director and writer, um, had a few Emmys under his belt, but had not directed any film just yet. And what sold the writers and Michael J. Fox on Rod Daniel was the fact that he was the only person that they interviewed who saw Teen Wolf as a story about a father and son. And really a perfect match for this because he had done so much TV work as a director and they have to shoot very, very quickly. And so finding a director who only has three weeks, who's barely familiar with the script or story to be able to knock out a movie, even though it was his film directorial debut, he was a skilled director as far as like shooting quickly, getting performances, working with actors. He, he wanted a lot more, I think, for Teen Wolf than what the budget would allow. Like he wanted to go on location to somewhere remote, like in a small town in middle America. But I mean, on a small budget, you're not going to be able to move an entire production out of L.A. Um, so a, a story that was told was that he actually went for like a week to somewhere in Nowheresville, Nebraska or something, and just lived amongst some um, teenagers, I guess. And that was where uh, one of the story ideas that he pulled out of um, his experience, his little vacation of getting to know the youth of America, was actually the scene where Styles dumps Jello down a, a girl's shirt and chubby... <laughs> unfortunate name and chubby um eats the jello out of her shirt that was one thing that rod daniel saw himself and it was no surprise that like two years after teen wolf rod daniel uh directed yet another teen comedy with a rising tv star kirk cameron in a father-son type movie uh like father like son which also had a trendy the body swap thing going on so who could forget you know two years later he he Continue, you know, sort of went on and then did, uh, I think in 89, did K9 with James Belushi, oh, yeah. which was, uh, again, trendy. We're going to pair a person with a dog, and that's <laughs> going to be the story. Um, and then he, in the height of Joe Pesci's fame, uh, in 1991, he directed The Super. I don't know if anyone remembers that movie. Really uh, does not hold up well. I uh, took a revisit in uh, quite a. Uh, mean-spirited and offensive film by today's standards but Ooh, can um, i borrow this do you own it i'd love to but joe pesci kind of like yeah just uh you know uh slumlord's not a real comedic thing anymore <laughs> now normally we get into a lot of production talk with the movies that we do for the podcast uh like we said this movie was shot very quickly in three weeks which is a little unheard of for you know movies that have big stars in them so there wasn't a lot of information on the behind the scenes other than like I don't know that anyone said a bad thing about Michael J. Fox everybody seems to think that he was as great behind the camera and behind the scenes as he is on screen though it was shot in three weeks it did allow the budget and time for as much as it could anyway to the effects of makeup and making the transformation scene happen and have it look like halfway decent. Cause we had already, there was so much talk about transformation scenes up until this point, we had already had, like we said, American werewolf in London 
and we had the howling. Those are known for their transformation scenes. And so if you're going to have a werewolf movie, that has to be a solid scene. And even though this was a team comedy, they took that aspect of it with great seriousness and said, hey, let's make this look really good. And the effects team did a really good job. I mean, it you can see that this is a low-budget movie in some of these effects, but I still think watching it, I mean, it, it still works. It still works. And, you know, even though he's just wearing like a furry costume, you know, with a, you know, they didn't use a mask, but they're using makeup and then like a wig. A guy in a wolf suit looks pretty freaking good. I mean, it it's passable. You know, it's passable. It doesn't, you know, completely take you out of the movie. Um, and, you know, he's in this get up like 50% of the movie, either him or his stunt double in full costume, really the last half of the movie. And I didn't really think about this before because I just had always assumed that the wolf was an entire costume and then you put his clothes over him. But it was really, I mean, they didn't have the budget to remake pieces. So every piece that you see of the wolf, like his arms, face, legs, everything is separate. It's not an actual like whole costume. And each piece was needing to be um, checked and, you know, like re-sewn together. Like all of these like had individual hairs that were woven into this like it was minutia detail and all of these pieces were worn by Michael J. Fox and his stunt double and the gymnast who was his stunt double on top of the van when he's surfing USA um and that takes a lot you know yeah these pieces that are foam latex that are just absorbing your sweat that need to be wrung out and then you know repainted and redone um I mean, it takes a lot of work. So when you look at the transformation sequence, that by itself like took an entire, I, God, I think it took. Something like he was like in makeup for like three hours before they could shoot. Yeah. And then there were times when he'd be in full makeup and then have, have to take those things off and then have to shoot as Scott Howard. And when you see, I love it a little bit because you see him red and blotchy and he looks like yeah. such a teenager. It's perfect for Teen Wolf. But the reason that Michael J. Fox is red and blotchy is because he had that same day had been shooting as the wolf. And that's what, you like know, glue and stuff. On yeah, his face. that's what it just did to his skin. But it was perfect when you're playing a teenager. And as much as the I think the effects hold up, man, the uh using a body double for the basketball stuff and other sequences haven't aged as well. And I think that's with every 80s action movie, it cuts to like a stunt person and, you know, they're just trying to get these stunts to look good. They're not always like working to make the it look like the same person. And they do a decent job. I mean, they obviously cut to some close-ups of Michael J. Fox in the wolf costume, but all of the wide shots in him like running it's clearly a different person who's like bigger, taller than Michael J. Fox. In the face, though, it passes. It's it's passable. It's passable <laughs> in a way. I don't know. It, it's the only part of the movie that because they use a lot of it. I mean, that guy, I think the the stunt double, he worked for something like four or five days, but he's in the movie. I mean, he anytime they cut to a shot of the basketball of like him dribbling or moving around it's the stunt double and jeff glosser who was the basketball player from loyola university he was recruited to shoot for this what's been described as one hellishly long week all of these basketball sequences and 
Michael J. Fox, he was a hockey player and he didn't know a thing about basketball or too much about basketball. And as it turns out, neither did a lot of the guys that you see on the court. So Glosser constructed all of these uh, basketball sequences and kind of directed them in a way uh, to make them look believable. But I mean, you watch the sequences, they are all built around him, which makes sense. Um, And it does look really professional, but I guess there was one point in which Michael J. Fox was like, let us just, you know, let's just try it. Let's just do a scrimmage and just see how it looks. And I guess it looks pretty terrible. So they went back to Glosser doing it. I read, too, that they had a retired college basketball coach that was there also to help with the authenticity. And he was having them run drills like the actors run drills. And he basically was just like, I don't want to look at basketball again (laughs) after this. I know nothing about basketball. I mean, I shouldn't say I know nothing about basketball when I was in for like three years, I sat on the bench in a uniform and watched other the other people on my team play. Justin, um, when I was in middle school, and so I, you know, picked up a little bit from that. Were uh, you as tall as you? I was about are now? the shortest. I was probably like four foot nine. Oh. I didn't really hit a growth spurt till I was like sixteen. So I was the shortest person in my school. So, but you were required to play. Um, oh. It was a very small school. Okay. They needed me to qualify as a team, I think, but like they could swap me out with people, which is fine. Um, you know, but my point being is, is that I know enough about basketball, even though it's so little. And when I'm watching Teen Wolf, man, it really doesn't look like anybody knows <laughs> what's going on. It doesn't feel like a real, it just, it looks really choppy right there. Like they're just kind of cutting around stuff. It, the basketball stuff sequences don't, feel very well made but then again it's not a sports movie but then on the same token there's a lot of basketball sequences in the movie they do better when they're doing like a montage stuff of just people or you know doing layups and that kind of thing but the basketball aspects of it probably have aged the worst out of everything in the movie to be fair though a lot of those basketball sequences aside from the last one Uh, the final game like they're all centered around scott howard as the wolf and being a showman that he's like taken over the game basically so i mean we don't even want to see the rest of the team because uh, story-wise it's all he's he's being a glory hound it is kind of funny too that like um one of the superpowers of being a werewolf is you just immediately become really good at basketball and great in school too. yeah it's kind of wild who Um, knew you know it it works in this (laughs) weird I believe Fantasy it. teen comedy. I totally believe it. One more thing before we cut to the next discussion. Um, I think we mentioned that it was a gymnast that's on top of the Wolfmobile who's doing all the backflips and everything. Um, it's not Michael J. Fox up there. I mean, sorry if some of you thought that that was Michael J. Fox. It's not at all. But Jerry Levine, who played Styles, he did do all of his stunts, which would be absolutely terrifying for me, but probably a high point in life, I think, um, if I had done those, he was wired in and had a cable running up his pants and uh, around um, his midsection. But still, I think he's doing a pretty good job up there. And we talked about this off the mic, but this movie feels like it takes place in like a small town in a small mm-hmm. Midwest town. And this van surfing that they do feels very genuine to like something that teenagers would do in a small town. You know, there's not a lot of entertainment. There's not a lot of way to work out all that energy and so doing really stupid stuff. I mean, you see it in big city too, but this van surfing feels like very original and but genuine to like something that kids would do in small town America. 
Uh, final thing I'll say about the script is that uh, really devoid of sex and drugs for a 80s movie. There's uh, that one kind of racy scene a little bit. There is. I, I, no, yeah, I agree with that. But yeah. only, only one scene, though. Only one scene, but she is like very forward and... You know, they do show her like in her underwear and bra, but they really kept this movie pretty clean. It's very family friendly, which was an 80s thing in a way, though. A lot of these family, quote unquote, family films of the 80s, you go back and watch, you're like, man, it's pretty heavy for like kids, you know, under like 10. But this one, actually, I think you could show it to kids still. And I think this movie plays pretty well. Uh, My good buddy, Justin Hayward, who we've talked about, and he's been on this podcast many times when we were starting out. Uh, I always hear the stories of him kind of showing his kids these movies that he loved. And I don't know that he had done Teen Wolf yet, but he had showed them Gremlins, which they love. They love Indiana Jones, the Back to the Future. Um, But it is funny. Another friend of mine showed one of his kids Gremlins, and his kid is six. And he's like, I think I did it too early. Hasn't really (laughs) been able to sleep for like two days. It really freaked him out. So I always, you know, in thinking of movies where – that have aged well as far as like family friendly movies. I think Teen Wolf is a great example of something that, you know, has carried on where you have like some fun nostalgia attached, but then you rewatch and you're like, yeah, you know what? This isn't, it's, I was waiting for some like, you know, really offensive thing that just doesn't fly anymore. And this one kind of doesn't land anywhere. Maybe, you know, tiny bit here and there but yeah definitely quick hits as far as i mean scott and boof in in the closet we don't know what happened in there it's just implied and even like the little mentions of weed or grass it's so quick that you don't even really notice it totally well let's stop there we'll go to another clip from teen wolf we'll be back we'll talk about the cast the reception and that unfortunate sequel oh I'm glad Jason Bateman went on to other things. I am too. And you know what? I was I'm I'm not gonna get negative like I did during the vacation podcast about sequels. Um I'm gonna keep it friendly, keep the gloves on, but I did sit through Teen Wolf Two the other night and I, I have some thoughts on it. Keeping the gloves on, that one's about boxing too. Hey. Hey. Let's go to a clip. Hey, Scotty. Come on in. Great game out there today. You want a thigh or a wing or something? No, it's not necessary, Coach. Listen, you know, you know how you always said that if any of us guys have any problems, I mean, even personal ones, that we should come and see you? Hey, that's what I'm here for. Great, because uh, I got a problem. Oh, yeah? What kind of problem? As you can see, I'm a very busy man here. Uh, yeah, well, it's, it's kind of complicated. Oh, oh, those kind of problems, yeah. What is it, drugs? Girls? Boy, I'd sure like to help you, but I'm really tapped out this month. The IRS is breathing down my neck like it's some kind of personal vendetta against Bobby Finstock. No, Coach. How can I put this? I'm going through changes. Oh, that. Don't worry about that. We all go through that. Some a little bit later than others. I'm sorry I didn't notice, but I haven't been hanging around the locker room all that much. No. You see... Coach, I, I just don't think it's going to be possible for me to play on the team anymore. Oh, yeah. Well, look, uh, Scotty, I know what you're going through. A couple years back, a kid came to me much the same way you're coming to me now, saying to me pretty much the same thing that you're saying. He wanted to drop off the team. 
His mother was uh, a widow, all crippled up. She was scrubbing floors. She had, uh, had this pin in her hip. So he wanted to drop basketball and get a job. Now, these were poor people. These were, these were hungry people with real problems. You understand what I'm saying? What happened to the kid? I don't know. He quit. It's a third stringer. I didn't need him. Yeah, Coach, I'm a first stringer. Yeah, and, and you already got a job working for your old man. The fact of the matter is, I should be coming to you when I need money. Fine. Uh, thanks a lot, Coach. Hey, don't mention it. Like I said before, mi casa su casa. So I want to start off by saying, if you haven't seen the Michael J. Fox documentary yet, I highly recommend it. It was an Apple TV original. As far as like the editing of them, him telling his story and them cutting together like scenes from all of his movies, the first half hour is like pretty riveting. He says this in the documentary and it kind of, you know, he says, I was bigger than bubblegum. I mean, and he really yeah, was. I mean, was. in the mid 80s. Michael J. Fox was such a huge box office draw, but also like people just generally loved him on and off the screen. Back in the 80s, I think Hollywood personas off of the screen were much more guarded and protected than they are now because everybody's got a phone and there's more paparazzi out there. But for the 80s, you really didn't hear anything negative about Michael J. Fox. Um, you know, he does share some pretty revealing things in his book, as well as a documentary that he partied pretty hard in the 80s. And there were times where he was like shaken out of his, you know, drunken stupor to like being driven to a set and like trying to sober up, pounding coffee before. But you don't really, to be honest, I don't, there's no movies I can think of where you watch it and you're like, oh yeah, like he's was totally like blowing it here and you know, it seemed like yeah. as far as like work was involved, he was always very convincing. And these characters that he plays are it's they're simple characters, but he has this particular charisma and the way that he is reacting to things that I think is solely original to him, his style of, you know, the hand on the back of the neck and the sort of very jerky confusion, questioning people like you know, he has this hyperactive slash vulnerable sensibility that makes you just love love him and you're like, oh man, I wish I was his friend. And, and I guess the other side of it too is that for someone who he doesn't look, they don't really do anything to hide his height on screen. I mean, people are always towering over Michael J. Fox. And I always kind of love that about his movies where other actors, you know, like Pacino or Tom Cruise, they're a couple inches taller than Michael J. Fox, but that, you know, there's always like a means to make these guys look larger than life and Michael J. Fox, even though he did these movies where there's a lot of action and adventure, they didn't shy away from the fact that this is a really little guy and he has like a young face and he is pretty adorable. When you said the the hand on the back of the neck and like the jerkiness, it made me th there's going to be like four people that understand what I'm talking about. But there's like this what I always used to call it, the Nev Campbell school of acting, which is like kind of like this jerky jerkiness to, to how you are emoting. And he has it a little bit. And I never thought about it, um, that it is in emotional scenes when you're just, when you're just trying to get it out, man, when you're just trying to express yourself and someone doesn't believe you. Um, it's just kind of like back and forth, like head 
thing. Do you know what I'm talking about? Oh, yeah, about? absolutely. And he, yeah. he he puts like a little nervous lump in his throat. Yeah. You know, Nef, when he's trying Nef, to put Nef out Campbell dialogue. does yeah. the same thing. And, uh, and, but really great comedic timing, you know, like allows the beats to happen, you know, has really good rhythm with other actors, mm-hmm. you know, isn't trying to dominate every scene he's in. A lot of what he does greatest is like reacting to the dialogue or the pressure coming off of another actor, mm-hmm. you know, especially if they're like coming down on him or like grilling him or like being an asshole to him. There's a moment in this when uh, I think he says to Styles, like, I'm just trying to, I'm just trying to live my life or something like that. And like, kind of like does this dramatic kind of like turnaround in, in the hallway. And it made me think of, I had just seen the secret of my success and he does that in it too. But you, um, it's not that he's always the same in every movie. He's definitely playing different characters, but his charisma and his way of using his body in expressing emotions, like he is very thoughtful in his in his body movements. Even down to like one thing that uh, that the writers talked about in one scene in Teen Wolf where he's slipping and sliding down a hallway, that that wasn't in the script that, you know, they were like, you can just, you know, run down the hallway and like kind of slip or whatever. But he adds so much to that scene and adds so much comedy that wasn't even planned for. And that's one of my favorite scenes. It's it's like perfect Michael J. Yeah. Fox, actually. He's a very physical actor. And you see that all throughout the Back to the Future series. Um, I'm glad we're bringing all this up because I want to relate that to my pick of the week because I feel like when he gets into his more serious roles that he did a handful of, he really loses that physical aspect of his acting and tries to do more with his eyes and with his tries to emote more emotion and really becomes like way less animated. And so you are seeing a different side of him in a few of these late eighties movies Mm -hmm. than we do in Teen Wolf back to the future. But I really feel like his style of, acting in these movies and his physicality is very original it feels like something that's solely his you know you don't really feel like he's like riffing off of you know like oh he was a really big fan of James Cagney or whoever and like you know he's like channeling him like this is he's developing this all little like it's his own little style that he has in the same way that you know Chevy Chase or Bill Murray had their own physical comedic style I think Michael J. Fox fits in that category of like you know, he found the parameters of what worked and then is able to squeeze all that in there for some laughs, but at the same time, give a performance that doesn't feel one note, you know, that he is this vulnerable character that is trying to deal with a change in his body and his life. And I wonder how much that had to do with being primarily from television too, like being able to constantly be on and be like a 360 actor versus just acting for one or two cameras. When you're a sitcom actor, you've got three or four cameras on you. So I wonder if that's just really what he was naturally, what he became. Yeah. You know, we could talk about Michael J. Fox for hours, but we'll, <laughs> we'll, we'll move through the cast here. Who should we go to next? Well, first I want to say, like many movies that we've covered, Michael J. Fox is the star of this movie, but they really built a nice ensemble around him of really solid actors, character actors who make the most of their scenes. And it doesn't just feel like they just grabbed anybody and put a suit on them and said, here, you just have to do this. It really feels like um, these characters come alive for a very rushed, low-budget production. It feels like they you know, took some time 
and the performances of all the secondary characters really come through. But to answer your question, I like to start with James Hampton, who portrays Michael J. Fox's father in Teen Wolf. Uh, he always plays these very sensitive characters who often have like the, their demeanor and their tonality of their voices like quiet and calm. One of my favorite roles of his is in Sling Blade. He plays the very... Oh sort of yeah. wise right. and soft-spoken caretaker of the facility that Carl is uh, in and when he's talking in the beginning of like what Carl's been through it's he just has a way to deliver lines and and sound so sincere and you are used to movies where everyone's talking very fast and they're like they're yelling and that's in a lot of 80s movies too and you don't really even when he's like worked up a little bit his he has this very calm demeanor that's like very relaxing and he does in you know the biggest scene in Teen Wolf obviously I think the most memorable is the reveal that his father is also a werewolf Michael J. Fox opens up the bathroom door and we see this middle-aged werewolf you know with grain hair we need to have a talk son yeah and the way he presents the information of like i was hoping it was going to pass over you just seems like you know he he loves his son and it feels very wise and like well-spoken versus it that scene we already have the the, we already have the intensity of him transforming so it's nice post that scene to have this conversation that like breathes a little bit and that's all the information we need about the legacy of the wolf is yeah. like it passed down it skips a generation sometimes but nope you're our family are werewolves he's so supportive and gentle and you know he might be a wolf but he comes across as just a cuddly bear to me and for like that scene in particular when he's you know saying that this is passed down through the family um and michael j fox is having a semi-fit um it could that scene could really all be about Scott, um, but it it really doesn't come off that way. It really does like it comes together um, as a this parental moment that's happening and that they are coming together. And it's not just the strength of Michael J. Fox. It's I mean, James Hampton. He came out of like the '60s. Like he'd been around quite some time before Teen Wolf, and that was one of the reasons that the writers could depend on him um, and his strength to be Scott Howard's dad. Let's move to maybe the complete opposite of a character than Harold Howard um, to Rupert Stilinski, better known as Styles, played by Jerry Levine. This is, uh, I said before, my favorite character in the movie. The way Jerry Levine plays this is very fun. I, I think on paper, Styles probably seemed kind of one note and he gives a little depth. I mean, Again, he's trying to capitalize on his friend's misfortune of finding out that he's a werewolf. But at the same time, he he keeps the movie going. He's the comic relief. You know, he's the party animal. He's the one who wants to bring everybody together. He's the one that, you know, is calm and collect trying to go in to buy the keg of beer <laughs> and is the one that has like the tricked out van and the one who, until the wolf comes along, is the one that does the surfing on the van, the the risk taker when I was a kid I loved styles and I think also too like we'll talk about it but this Teen Wolf off of its success became an animated series and the character of styles is in the animated series too and is also like the fun comic relief who is going to be the person that 
you know, if something crazy or weird is going to happen in a night, you have that one friend that's going to be the purveyor of that, who's going to be the person that gets you stuck in that situation because their thought is always on what is going to stimulate me. That is what his character intends to do scene after scene in this movie. And I like the sort of friendship triangle between Styles and Lewis and Michael J. Fox and Boof. You know, they're not all the same. They're all friends, but they seem like they come from different backgrounds, aspects versus just like, you know, four friends that are almost identical. And that's why they're friends because they have all the same things in common. They all act the same. Styles is someone that really could be one note, and I love that he's not. Jerry Levine um, does amp it up just in the same way as James Hampton, siphoning out of your character that could be pretty bland. Or I mean, Styles isn't bland, but because he is such a vibrant character, um, you can just play him for that. Yeah, it's really surprising me that Jerry Levine didn't get someone didn't write some like TV character for him to play like a Charles in charge type role. Um, but he did, you know, he was in a ton of like eighties movies, iron Eagle, casual sex out of bounds with, uh, Anthony Michael Hall and has done just a ton of TV work, but he just has one of those faces. that's like instantly recognizable, really good character actor and really great support for Michael J. Fox in this movie. One thing that sticks out for some people, and Justin, you might have mentioned this off the mic, is that Jerry Levine does kind of look older um, than high school age, as do a lot of people in Teen Wolf. But I do love this little story that was told about when Levine auditioned for casting director Paul Ventura, that Rod Daniel, the director, was down with him, and Ventura was too, but he was just like you're just too old, man. We can't, can't do it. And, um, somehow just in true styles fashion, Levine was able to convince him that it's, it's not about how you look, man. It's how you play the character and totally works. I wonder if he did it in styles voice too. Well, I'd like to just take this moment since you bring it up. It didn't really matter that he looks older because (laughs) watching this movie, Michael J. Fox about the only person in this movie that was cast that looks like he's under the age of 30. Matt Adler, who plays Lewis, does... He looks younger, yeah. But, I mean, during the prom sequences, if you... You know, I just had it on the background the other day, and it's like, without the sound on, I was doing other stuff, and it's like, man, this does not look like a high school prom. It kind of looks like some sort of, like, high school reunion where they came back (laughs) 10 years later and did a dance. I love the way it looks, even if some of them look like a lot of adults. Well, Levine was coming out of working on the TV show Charles in Charge at the time when he auditioned for Teen Wolf, as was Susan Your City, who played Boof, better known as Lisa Marconi. I mean, the other way around. Lisa Marconi was Boof's name. We just don't call her that in the movie. And it was Levine who encouraged Susan to audition for Teen Wolf. And at the time, a lot of actors that were coming in for the role of Boof looked completely the same and were just kind of run of the mill. And, you know, as we were making fun of before, um, you know, being brown haired and plain and I mean, I know that life, brown hair, brown eyes. I know it's it's you get roped in with everybody else looking the same. But there was something special, actually, even more special, that stood out about Susan was that when she went in to audition for the role of Boof, the writers and Michael J. Fox had actually already seen her in a film from one of the directors that they were interviewing. It was a small student film called Last Chance Dance. Um, So she had stood out already for them in that. So when she came in to audition at the behest of Jerry Levine, 
she was kind of a shoe in for the role. And I mean, I don't know about you, Justin. Boof is kind of like, she's the one I would go for. I know that we're supposed to go for Pamela, played by Lori Griffin. I don't know. I think it's Boof all the way for me. Yeah, I think Boof paves the way for copious future <laughs> films of like the lead not realizing what he has right there in front of him. <laughs> yes, and this exactly. very, you know, also attractive, spirited, smart friend who he's already comfortable with, who clearly is giving him signs left and right to suggest that she is into him and he is blind by it because he's after like the prettiest blonde in school. You know what's cool about Booth, though, is that she's not changing herself in any way for him. She's still sticking by him as his friend, but wanting Scott to be, you know, wanting him to remember that he's a cool person and not, um, you know, she's his best friend, but it's kind of atypical of female characters at the time. I highly agree because normally we'd have her be either super high strung or like a caricature where she's like super mean, like, oh, well, I don't like you if you're the wolf or whatever. But she, all the scenes where she confronts him about his change in trying to be popular and trying to gain fame and friends, she's very genuine about it and has like a real conversation, has real concerns, and but also doesn't write him off. They've had this like long history of friendship. And so even when she sees him at the dance, there's a moment where her character expresses like, okay, I, you know, I don't like all this, but like, you're my friend and yeah. I'll accept you either way, but I'd rather you be the real human that I have known and, and cared about. And none of that's a drag in this movie. You know, she really elevates the character in a way, like you said, much more so than we see how a lot of female characters were written in the 80s. You know, surprising that it was two males that wrote her role in an 80s movie versus, you know, it would have it would have not been surprising to me if it'd be like, oh, like, you know, one of their female friends came in and touched up the Booth character. Yeah, that's true. She doesn't have a Ali Sheedy moment like in the end of Breakfast Club, which is something that I would assume Booth would have. But you know why? Because Booth's perfect. That's yeah. That's why. Well, let's go to the, the final... Um, group main group friend character of matt adler lewis who actually was like 18 19 at the time of filming probably one of the youngest on set he's like the consciousness you know maybe the most grounding of all the characters who um we we had kind of a, a funny conversation off the mic that it seems like there's something else going on with lewis i don't know what it is but he's he's pretty serious he's pretty mad about Scott changing who he is. This could have been cut out of the script where he confronts Scott and like, you know, empties his soul about all this like built up frustration that he's had about him becoming a werewolf or, you know, trying to gain popularity by becoming a werewolf. But the way that the character of Lewis is played is like he's harboring some sort of like secret uh, <laughs> really from the get-go. Like even when he says, oh, how'd you buy the beer? And he's like, oh, I just went and, or when he's like, how'd you buy the cake? And he's like, I just went and asked for it. It's almost like he's like nervous and scared and upset. And later on in the movie, they a lot of times he's not saying anything, but they'll cut to his expression and it's this look of forlorn or disdain. And then there's even a moment later on where, Michael J. Fox's character asks Styles, like, oh, where's Lewis? You know, and he's like, oh, he's 
he, you know, he makes a joke, but there's like an insinuation that Lewis is not hanging around them anymore, but there's something more going on. And it's never really revealed what it is because he doesn't seem like bent out of the shape at the end of the movie. But there's like, I would say like a good like second act into the third act where he there's something going on with this character and it's it's like unexplained. And maybe it's just the way that Adler played the character. I mean, I think it's probably just that he is just not down with the wolf. He isn't down with the wolf from moment one, especially in the final like dance sequence, like he is even more disappointed by Scott than Boof. I like to think that it's maybe Lewis always had a crush on Scott and that's what it's about. Um, He's just not going to come out about it. I don't really think that that's what it is in reality. I think it's just that he doesn't like the wolf, but it is really fun to have that kind of backstory. Um, In an interview real quickly, just because I love this movie so much, Matt Adler said that before Teen Wolf, um, he was auditioning and had almost gotten the role, had three callbacks for the little brother in just one of the guys who's one of the main characters and was like set. It was pretty much like he was going to get that role. And then at the last kind of minute, he was cut for the guy who did get the role. But um, he was mopey and devastated, pretty much dejected when he went into the Teen Wolf audition. So I wonder if that's maybe what got him the role was that how mopey and like bummed out he was that he didn't really think he nailed the audition. But after after it was over, they were like, nope, that's the guy we want. That's perfect. So maybe, um, I guess, like being bummed out over not getting just one of the guys. I wouldn't want that character and just one of the guys be what I was remembered for. I'd rather be Lewis and Teen Wolf. And Matt Adler. <laughs> I don't uh, know, though. That character's pretty good. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and Matt Adler, uh, you know, he plays a more quiet, meek character in Teen Wolf, but kind of went on to play more of like the tougher characters like Whitewater Summer. He's like the more tougher, like River Phoenix type stand by mm-hmm. me character. And also in uh, one of my favorite movies from the 80s that is such a weird movie, but I love it, is the uh, two Corys doing Dream a Little Dream. Matt Adler plays Dumas, the kind of like the school lunkhead slash bully that they butt heads with. And yeah, you just, you know, he, he popped up in a lot of 80s movies and then, you know, he's done a ton of television throughout the last 20 or 30 years. Another familiar face throughout the 80s um, in bit parts, but I think probably best known from Pee-wee's Big Adventure is Mark Holton, unfortunately named Chubby in Teen Wolf, but I love his character. Um I, I do think, God, especially in Teen Wolf 2, it's it's even worse. Like the fat jokes are jokes that are just based around his heaviness. The thing about it, though, is that Mark Holton does it with a lot of grace. And one thing that was used in the 80s as far as like fat jokes and things is like slovenly and like disgusting. I don't think that that comes off with the character of Chubby. And the writers also talked about a part in the final game, the final scene of the movie, when Mark Holton's character nails like a like a great shot. And like he does it a couple times actually. And Scott comes up and jumps on his back. That that wasn't in the script and that was kind of improvised in the moment. And it in a way, if you think about this movie being Scott and Chubby like what is his name? Like just give me you know, I just want a name. His name wasn't Chubby. If you think about it, that these two characters were probably two of the most held down or bullied, that that moment, even though it's just like a little scene, is really powerful. Yeah, and the uh, What a Year, 1985, he does Teen Wolf, and then also a very memorable Francis (laughs) in 
Pee-wee's Big Adventure. He's awesome. Like the great nemesis <laughs> for Pee-wee. Continued on to do tons of like television and film, but uh, a very memorable role in a movie that it's it's not the greatest movie, but his performance in it. Um, speaking of serial killers coming out of our serial killer summer. Uh, he portrays John Wayne Gacy in the movie Gacy. Yeah. And the movie's a little bit exploitive. I wasn't the biggest fan of it, but his actual portrayal, if you know anything about Gacy or, I mean, he seems like he really did his research and really tried to portray a character who's on the outside, very loving and, and well balanced and then behind closed doors like a total monster. Yeah, I'm right there with you. That performance is great. Mark Holton is fantastic with um, extremes and facial reactions and going from, I mean, we see it a lot in Pee-wee's Big Adventure of just how devious his character is, but how animated he could be puts a lot into characters that are given to him that, especially at that time, were kind of one-dimensional. Well, he's really good at doing the, uh, when you're not without saying anything, doing the eye shift where he like looks at a character and then his eyes move over to suggest like, but did you see what's happening here? Like he's the first one to sort of with his eyes express like, well, maybe it's not that bad that he's a wolf if he's really good at basketball, you know, I guess we'll roll with this. Yeah. And I think that's the first kickoff of like, okay, these characters are accepting immediately that he's a werewolf and the movie's not going to stop dead in its tracks while everyone's like trying to process the fact that now werewolf is one of their classmates and, and teammates. Well, someone who likes Scott way more for being a werewolf than actually Scott Howard is the character of Pamela played by Lori Griffin who's really you know she's just concerned with who's the most popular she's a great antithesis to the Boof character um if anything the two popular people in this like Pamela and her boyfriend Mick played by Mark Arnold they're great at being bullies but also that essence of superiority which i don't think is always communicated in when we show like the popular characters or the bullies that this level of superiority that they just couldn't care less about uh anyone beneath them and ironically enough i mean if you think about it character wise um it was susan your city who helped Lori Griffin get the part of pamela because they had just worked on a commercial together and she thought oh hey you'd be perfect for this and riding that superiority wave, too, was uh, Mr. Thorne, the vice principal, played by Jim McCrell, who I don't know about you, Justin, but I never really realized he was the vice principal, which might play into why he's such a jerk, um, because he does really feel like um, he's he's trying to get back at Scott for how Scott's dad scared him with, with uh, wolfing out in front of him in high school. And there was a good quote. I can't remember which one of the writers said it, but that he didn't command respect. He demanded it, which is not an admirable quality to have as a principal or vice principal. It's very similar to the relationship uh, Marty McFly has with the principal in Back to the Future. Just this, they're always on his back, you know, they want him to conform. Wow, another crossover. Imagine that. And to round out the cast, there's Coach Finstock, played by Jay Tarsis. He was not in very many things after Teen Wolf, a couple TV series. I think he's great in this movie. I mean, he has, he's there's so much going on with his character. You know, he does a lot. He just seems so convincing as your sort of lackadaisical high school coach who you know, cares about his teammates, but he's also trying to be like manly and 
you know, constantly thinking about two different things at once. And the whole scene they have where Scott is talking to him about, you know, I've got these changes going on. It's before (laughs) he wolfs out and the coach handles it in just the most like authentic feels authentic way of like what a high school basketball coach would do. And again, you know, all of these little bit parts, I think really for a low budget movie that was shot so quickly, really lend to this universe and make it believable. Even though these were small roles, they got great actors to support and really brings it to life, selling the characters and selling the story. So great accomplishment for such a small production. I really think uh, it's like great ensemble cast. I totally agree. And I think the the casting director was really on point. And with uh, Coach Finstock, uh, Ventura had actually known somebody who was in an acting class with him. And I think Jay Tarsus was um, a writer and producer more than he was known for acting. But um, someone actually suggested him to Ventura and was like, this guy's great at improv. You should really see him. So makes sense that maybe he was doing other things rather than acting, but definitely yeah. sticks out in this movie. And all of these actors that are supporting like the principal and the coach and the father, they don't look like Hollywood actors. You know, they I mean, they've been in tons of TV and Hollywood movies, but they don't have that sort of look where. It's like it's the dad, but it's he's he's super fit and handsome and well groomed. Like everybody has like bodies that look lived in. They feel like real people. Unless you're talking about the Jesse Eisenberg lookalike, who's the assistant to Coach Finstock, uh, played by Charlie Zucker. Um, just try to not see Jesse Eisenberg the next time you look at that guy for real. I don't think he has any lines in the movie. But, I mean, that's all I can see. I'm going to have to have you point that out to me. I mean, it's Jesse Eisenberg on screen. Okay. Now, I wanted to make mention uh, my first rewatch of this, which, like I said, beginning was the first time I'd seen it since I was a kid. The very first thing I noticed right off the bat was the music. It almost starts out that the music in the beginning is, like, pretty scary. Like, and it sets up that this is going to be a much creepier film. It almost has, like, a rhythm to it that's sort of like the theme for Friday the 13th. And it gets a little more 80s synth out later on, but the reoccurring theme music is very horror movie themed, which tonally that, you know, we've talked about this is more of a comedy, but it's still, it's a movie about a werewolf. So it is nice that they added a little extra element instead of just going straight heavy montage music, which they do plenty of that of throughout the movie as well. There are a couple songs in this that I think are only memorable if you've seen the movie and you attach some nostalgic feeling to them but um the background like the sound music the the score itself is something that I would put on in my own haunted house you know if I had one it couldn't be more opposite for the original music uh the the songs that are in the film I think that they're great for the time period you know and there's some like the 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 one that closes us out uh shooting for the moon uh, that plays over the credits it's definitely not the the vibe of the whole movie but does have a certain sweetness to it and has a wholesome warm factor the standout song for me in this film though is win in the end which i feel we hear the entire song on a montage and i can't help but get it out of my head but i'm not going to put it on blast in my convertible you know i totally get what you're saying and then there's a few songs that are 
callbacks to like an older generation. We've got the Surfing USA. You know, and I think for that sequence, they did need a song that kind of everybody knows, like a pop hit that is uh, familiar. But I wonder what they had to pay for that one. Yeah, I wonder since it was such a small budget, but maybe the rights for something like that back then weren't going to be as astronomical. And Miles Goodman, who is a composer for Teen Wolf, did go on to work with Teen Wolf director Rod Daniel in most of the movies that he made, as well as doing the composition for tons of 80s comedies and 90s comedies. I like it that when 80s movies had that, where they would have their pop songs, and then but then for the more serious parts of the movie or uh, themes for individual characters, which, you know, even though, again, such a small budgeted movie, they were able to work both of those in to make it feel like a bigger production than what it actually was. Yeah, the songs and the score, they do complement each other. It doesn't feel disjointed. Before we close out this sound music section, I just got to throw it in here that the werewolf growls are director Rod Daniel. It's pretty. It's a pretty fun little yeah, tidbit. Absolutely. And so the reception of Teen Wolf was very positive. Uh, for a movie called Teen Wolf. It uh, did really well at the box office. We've already talked before that a large portion of this probably was due to the fact that it was coming off of the heels of the success of Back to the Future, but it opened at number two at the box office behind Back to the Future, which had already been running for many, many weeks as number one, and Teen Wolf grossed about $35 million, went on to gross about $80 million worldwide, but for a movie with such a low budget, netted a very big profit, And, of course, with any movie that was successful in the 80s, the best thing that you could do immediately was start working on a sequel. And a sequel was made that I don't want to spend too much time talking about. It was titled Teen Wolf 2, T-O-O. It was the feature film debut of an 18-year-old Jason Bateman who is portraying the new Teen Wolf character who's a cousin of the Michael J. Fox character. The movie... uh, in my opinion, is very clunky. Uh, for a movie that seemed like it had a larger budget than the original Teen Wolf, it, it looks brighter in like a more polished production, but the writing, it really feels like something that was just kind of like done as a cash grab. They recast styles. They kept the character styles in, but recast it with a different actor. The movie seems very mean-spirited. It's sort of just retreads some of the same stuff that we already saw in Teen Wolf, but without any of the sincerity. And Jason Bateman doesn't really even seem like, he kind of seems like the same character, whether he's the wolf or he's, or whether he's like his regular character. His yeah. personality doesn't seem like it, ha- there's like a big change. He just gets and, a little bit more pompous. Yeah, and everything's, you know, and, you know, he is a, a boxer now in this, uh, doesn't really feel like a, a collegiate sport. You know, it's strange they didn't have him be like a baseball player or wrestler or, I don't know, track runner or something. Because also, too, as a boxer, like being a werewolf seems like there's like this clearly unfair advantage that you'd have more strength mm-hmm. um, and you're going to be physically pummeling someone. Just all, all together, again, it seemed like a more mean-spirited um, kind of run-of-the-mill type sequel that would happen occasionally in the 80s. There'd be a, a hit movie and then they'd like, two years later make a really shoddy sequel that like you know most people consider like some of the worst stuff ever made it's a ripoff of teen wolf it's the same structure um kind of the same story but like you said um more mean-spirited and i one thing i didn't like was that the character of todd who's who's the 
Teen Wolf, um, is he's more ashamed of his family werewolf lineage, um, which felt weird and kind of goes along with just like having a sour edge to to the sequel. And also um, boxing being more of an aggressive sport kind of like went with the aggressive, mean-spirited kind of nature. Nothing against boxing or anything like that, but it kind of falls in line with the spirit, I think, of Teen Wolf 2. Um, high points, even though I don't really care for his character, are John Aston as the, the dean of the school who's, I grew up with Gomez Adams. I love seeing that guy's face in anything. Um, not the most well-defined character in the world. But I would say probably biggest highlight for me was having two Oingo Boingo songs in it. There are a lot of musical moments in this that the songs are better than what's happening in the movie. I really can't handle the, uh, oh God, what's, um, Do You Love Me? Do You Love Me? Which I felt mean, like a direct ripoff from a movie that came out a year prior, Ferris Bueller's Day Off. It was almost like they just took that scene and replayed it, but they swapped out Twist and Shout for Do You Love Me? Yeah, there were just um, a lot of things that crossed over from the original Teen Wolf, like the sweet good girl is jilted for the, you know, hot blonde girl. Styles is still trying to make money off Teen Wolf. It, there's just it's the same structure, just not done as well. But hey, if you like Danny Elfman, watch it, you know? And. I'll be honest, like when Teen Wolf 2 came out in 1987, I was about 9 or 10, and I liked Teen Wolf 2 more than the original, mainly because it was newer and it was a little more exciting. Rewatching it, it was, it was. I'll, I'll be honest, it was, it was kind of hard to, to get through, <laughs> but I did it, you know, for this episode. And I'll say this, I'm glad that I own Teen Wolf 2. Yeah. Th- there have been some movies that we've done for this, like the sequels or a documentary from, that I'm like, I could... I could give that one up. I'm glad that I have Teen Wolf 2 because it's such a difference from the first Teen Wolf. And I like Jason Bateman. Um, Obviously, he is, uh, even if you watch Teen Wolf 2, he's obviously meant to be an adult actor. Yeah. I don't think that Teen Wolf 2 has any fault on his shoulders, in my opinion. No. And the Blu-ray boutique label Scream Factory did put out Teen Wolf and Teen Wolf 2 separate discs because I think for the longest time you could only get both movies together as like a combo DVD mm-hmm. and they did a really great job with the release and so if you're a fan of Teen Wolf 2 you probably might own that release but we own now a copy of each from Scream Factory and I always love what they do with their releases it seems like they even for movies that probably were left unwanted they take the time to put together some extras and do interviews with cast and crew and it's uh it looks pretty good for a movie that hadn't had a blu-ray release until they touched it and if you're a lover of teen wolf 2 we ain't hating we just uh you know again it's a movie that i hadn't seen in forever since it came out so it just to me sometimes you rewatch these movies that you haven't seen in forever and they just don't hold up to you the way that they used to even when nostalgia attached I do love the addition, just a quick thing, of Kim Darby, who uh, plays his advisor and a science teacher. I actually really like that actor. She's kind of an oddball. She's got the gayest haircut in this movie. Um, I mean, I mean, I think a lot of haircuts were pretty gay looking in the late 80s. Um, it's that mullet, that mullet spiky thing that's happening. But I do really like her um, addition in yeah. this film. And Kim Darby, a child actor who was great in the original True Grit with John Wayne, if you've never mm-hmm. seen it. And then, of course, she plays the mom in 
a movie that we've had here on the podcast, Better Off Dead, always making the crazy meals for her family, experimental meals. Yeah. And so in between Teen Wolf 1 and Teen Wolf 2, uh, they released an animated series for CBS that was Teen Wolf, and it had the character of Styles. It also had his dad, who uh, James Hampton is, I think, the only actor who's, as far as like canon Teen Wolf series, was in part one, part two, and voiced the dad character in the animated series. And I didn't get a chance to revisit the animated series before we were able to do this episode. I really wanted to. I was trying to track down at least like an episode and it's not easy to get a hold of, but I couldn't find it either. When I was a kid, I I loved it. You know, I had already loved the first movie and I really thought that the animated series was fun. And as far as I remember in the animated series, it's more of him trying to keep it a secret from everybody at school. It's not so much like him as the wolf. It's every episode is him trying to, you know, some of his friends know, but they're, he's trying to keep it under wraps and deal with it. And it's stretched out over the course of, I think they did two seasons. Eventually I'm going to try to track that down. It'd be awesome if some other entity put that out, you know, on a Blu-ray or DVD. If anybody has any leads, send them our way. Yeah. Well, let's uh, stop there. We'll come back for some final thoughts on Teen Wolf, but let's get into our Michael J. Fox picks of the week. Lindsay, you did The Secret to My Success. I've heard you talk about this movie, uh, good and bad, copious <laughs> amounts of times over the last five Why? years, in between, randomly in between uh, recording, and now finally uh, you went for it. This is your pick of the week, The Secret of My Success. What can you tell me about this film? This movie feels like it's best enjoyed years after it came out, and for different reasons. Tonally, it's kind of confused. It's a fish-out-of-water story, a love story, a sex comedy, and a small-town guy triumphing over the white-collar big bad and turning the tables. I've had a complicated relationship with The Secret of My Success probably since I was, like, five or six. It was always on TV. I loved Helen Slater from Supergirl and The Legend of Billie Jean. And Michael J. Fox was, like, huge at this time. As a little kid in the 80s, it made me feel like I could do anything, even if the chips were down and the odds against me. And as I grew into my 20s and realized that the world isn't fair, it was apparent to me how unrealistic a movie like this was and, and probably made me a little jaded against it. But now... The Secret of My Success is still unrealistic, so much white culture that I I don't even identify with, but its themes aren't all that bad. And it's ridiculous, and that's the aspect which now appeals to me. It's sheer entertainment, as opposed to a limited time-only inspiration kind of deal. The Secret of My Success does not contain an actual secret, other than to only take its absurdity seriously. Brantley Foster, played by Fox, is a recent college grad from Kansas who wants to climb the New York corporate ladder all the way to the top, but his plans are quickly dashed and Brantley has to regroup in his small, cluttered, dirty apartment with all the trappings of a cliché disgusting hole-in-the-wall studio. His job-hunting frustrations are summed up nicely during one interaction with actor Bruce McGill. How can I get any experience until I get a job that gives me experience? McGill's character responds, if we gave you a job just to give you experience, you'd take that experience and get a better job. Then that experience would benefit somebody else. I mean, pretty much sums up the beginning of this movie. But this farm boy is resourceful, and he's got one more ace in the hole. A very distant Uncle Howard, a corporate exec whom he's never met, played by Richard Jordan. Uncle Howard's a semi-sleazy chairman cheating on his wife, Vera, played by Margaret Witten, with another exec, Christy, played by Helen Slater. Despite his sleazebaggery, the cutthroat Uncle Howard hears out his nephew and gets Brantley in the door as a mailroom clerk. 
From the get-go, Brantley's defying the unspoken rules, like ignoring the hierarchy in the company, having creative ideas about the company, figuring out ways to improve productivity, and, you know, reading private memos between execs to get a better idea of how the company's run. Brantley's ingenuity knows no bounds as he quickly begins to live a double life at the Pemrose Corporation, Brantley Foster, the mailroom boy, and Carlton Whitfield, the new exec no one can remember hiring, turning into a young Republican-looking guy overnight, mainly through the repeated comical clothing changes and an emergency stop elevator. Brantley manages to dupe everyone with his shenanigans and gains the attention of an enchanting but no-nonsense exec, Christy. The two develop feelings for each other, but kind of fight it off and keep it professional. Remember, she's rumored to be sleeping with Brantley's Uncle Howard, the head exec at Primrose. The unexpected sex comedy aspect of this film is the most ridiculous, but it's masterfully crafted and mainly centered around Brantley's aunt by marriage. Her straight venom for her philandering husband Howard adds some overall great comedy, which Margaret Witten made a solid career at delivering comedically cutting lines. See her performance in Major League for that at its best. It's not overdone and also necessary to further put Uncle Howard into the villain role in this movie. He's pretty much a wienery villain, but we're definitely not supposed to like him. It's Aunt Vera's oversexed demeanor towards her nephew Brantley that tips the comedy in a way no one's expecting. It's not as sick as it sounds, but also, like a lot of things in The Secret of My Success, don't think too deeply about this or really any aspect of the movie. It's somewhat of an updated 50s office romance kind of comedy, the main character having a secret life he's keeping from everyone around him. It's a familiar story that's been recycled in many ways. I mean, see, don't tell mom the babysitter's dead, for that matter. But the extra fringe elements to this movie keep it moving. And for an 80s film, I was minorly surprised at the attempted uplifting of the female characters. Both Aunt Vera and Christy are central, strong characters. They exist independently of men and were probably products of the up-and-coming women in the workplace movement gaining steam in that decade. And bringing it back to Brantley, despite sleeping with his non-biological aunt and falling for Christy, he's given more than a few moments to reassure the audience that he's a good guy who respects women and sees them as equals instead of objects. And ultimately, really, it's women who save his butt at the end of this movie. Something that's not a fresh take and certainly not alien to movies about the business world are the wonderfully generic sayings that are being thrown around throughout the entire movie. We've got to build. We've got to block the takeover. Did you get my memo? It's these cheesy sayings that are kind of unimportant to the film. They're really just filler. But again, look at this movie for entertainment value only. It's the montages, really, for The Secret of My Success that are classic. I I think that there's a record, at least four, that I can think of. There's one where Brantley's, of course, falling for for the girl, Christy. Brantley's facilitating a crash course into his uncle's company, you know, going through papers and crunching the numbers. My favorite is Aunt Vera uh, taking Brantley to schmooze and make connections at a corporate party, and all these old white guys are just nodding in approval at Brantley's ideas. Actually, you know what? I take that back. My favorite one is Brantley, Christy, Auntie Vera, Uncle Howard, all sneaking around post-corporate party looking to get naughty with one another in secret. That's, that's a pretty classic one. Before I roll out here, the music needs to be mentioned. As producer, David Foster is responsible for the score and many of the songs. It also looks like Daryl Hall of Hall & Oates had some influence on this album's overall sound. 
Night Ranger gives us the film's title song, arguably second to the film's closing song called Sometimes the Good Guys Finish First by Pat Benatar, who just can't seem to break free from Helen Slater films. Bananarama throws in a Risk in a Romance, Walking on Sunshine by Katrina and the Waves that was also featured in American Psycho. And, I mean, I think Yellow's Oh Yeah was in how many 80s movies? Well, it makes an appearance here, too. Ultimately, Brantley's a sweet Kansas boy who's also a cunning, crafty con man. I guess that's what you need to make it in this world. The secret of my success holds more charm for me than it ever has before. It's not rocket science, it's straight entertainment. There's nothing ruthless or mean-spirited about it, though. It may be unrealistic, but it gave a little kid me dreams and a sense of self-reliance, so that's nice. While maybe Brantley's story is one in a million, it's always nice to watch a good guy triumph over the big bad, especially when it's Michael J. Fox flanked by a cast of familiar faces from the decade. It was movies like uh, this and Big that made me think that uh, with no experience, you could just walk into the corporate world and just be a big success. Yeah. These 80s movies. You just got to throw around phrases. Yeah. Put on um, a suit and, you know, just look nice. You got it. Duh. What's interesting that this Michael J. Fox movie came out in 1987 and was quite a big hit. It made over $100 million at the box office. Uh, My Pick of the Week, also starring Michael J. Fox, came out the same year and was a big bomb. And Justin, what was that? That was uh, Light of Day, written and directed by Paul Schrader. Yeah, I haven't seen this. I can't wait to hear about it. Well, as you know, I'm a fan of Paul Schrader. Uh, Yes. One of his movies I really love, Blue Collar, with Richard Pryor, that I did as a pick of the week uh, early, early on in this podcast. Light of Day is, uh, it was Michael J. Fox's first shot at trying to do like a semi-serious role in like in the darker storied movie. You know, he had pretty much strictly been known as a comedic actor. Paul Schrader, known for writing very dark, lonely man pictures, you know, Taxi Driver, Raging Bull. This movie uh, was interesting because I, I didn't dislike it as a kid. You know, I didn't think it was boring, but I had never played in the band or anything, so it was interesting. The movie is about a bar band struggling in Cleveland, Ohio. It uh, co-stars Joan Jett, which is an inspired um, casting choice. Uh, Joan Jett had kind of blown up as a solo artist by the early 80s, and so she was probably as big as Michael J. Fox you know, as far as like a casting choice. It also stars Gina Rollins, who I love. Um, She plays their very religious mother who's kind of disapproving of everything, especially the life that they're leading. If you've played in bands, though, watching this movie now, it's kind of comedic because they're, they're a struggling bar band. And like, I guess like in this movie, a bar band is considered a band that plays like you, you, you're hoping to do some covers and play for like three hours and uh, generate, I guess, another night at this particular bar. You know, you'll become the house band. I think that this uh, scene does still exist. It's sad that uh, this movie was made like 30-something years ago, and at the end of the night, what these guys get paid is pretty similar to what bands are still getting paid at the end of the night uh, nowadays, which is pretty depressing. The difference with this band is, is like they're a struggling band that the the, the the lead singer, songwriter of the band, which is uh, Joan, played by Joan Jett. The band is called the Barbusters, kind of an uninspired band name choice. But I guess they were uh, Paul Schrader. Um, there was a Cleveland band called the Generators who Paul Schrader was sort of modeling this movie after. 
and Joan Jett's character is pretty despicable. She has a young child, but she's like, you know what? I don't want to work a job. I don't want to do anything to help my kid. What I want to do is make it as a, uh, as a band, but doesn't really seem to try super hard to like actually practice and make, make it as a band. Uh, she kind of relies on her brother played by Michael J. Fox, who is working in the factory and he's kind of supporting his sister and her four or five year old kid. And in a matter of desperation, she, she decides what what they should do. Um, after Michael J. Fox loses his job, we're just going to go on tour. That's a way to make a bunch of money. So they go on tour and it seems like fairly successful, but during the tour, she again, kind of like, uh, she shoplifts some steaks and uses her kid to, um, kind of conceal it. And Michael J. Fox sees it. She, uh, kind of lies to the other guys in the band saying, no, we were real successful. So I got these steaks I've been saving, you know, so we can have this great dinner. Um, and Michael J. Fox kind of has a blowout with her. And then Michael J. Fox also has a blowout with one of her boyfriends. This is a scene. I know it sounds like I'm talking bad about this, but it's kind of an interesting movie just in the sense of Michael J. This era of Michael J. Fox's career, because they're really trying to make him look like a tough guy. And he just, no matter what they do, you can put a leather jacket on him. Michael J. Fox confronts this guy who's Joan Jett's boyfriend. Uh, this guy's like twice Michael J. Fox's size. Michael J. Fox kind of like throws him up against the wall and like is grabbing him by a shirt collar. And uh, man, it just does not feel convincing in the least bit. But despite that, uh, I think he does gives a pretty decent performance. And I also think Joan Jett gives a really great performance in this. It's just the, uh, I wish there was more like them playing music. Uh, there's just a lot of, um, they're getting ready to play and Joan Jett doesn't show up and they're all like, you know, where is she? We're getting ready to literally setting up and sound checking. And she's like breaking into someone's house, trying to like steal something to sell to make money. And so that comes back later on in the movie. It's like this running theme of like, you know, they're always waiting around for us. Like, is she going to show up tonight? <laughs> she's the lead singer. Uh, scene would be really frustrating. Um, and as someone who's in the band, when you watch this, you'll be frustrated by it. And this frustration is shown by Michael McKean, who uh, is one of the band members of the Bar Busters. He kind of says what you'll be saying as an audience member if you've been in the band. Um, you know, they they need to get things together. They need to get organized. Um, so he is the, sort of the grounded one of the band. Overall, this movie's worth watching. If you like Paul Schrader, and this is a movie that you missed, like you said, you had seen this one. Uh, it is kind of hard to find. Um I had a laser disc of it. That's how I watched it. But I did look and someone did upload it to YouTube. So you can see the full movie. It's a fairly decent version of it up on YouTube. Uh, this movie does have some interesting casting to it because the original movie was written for Bruce Springsteen by Paul Schrader. And the original title of the movie was called Born in the USA. And Springsteen got a copy of the script. That's how far along they got. And Springsteen turned it down. But uh, he was working on a song at the time about the Vietnam war and living in America during the war and, uh, love the title born in the USA. So he took the title born in the USA and, um, you know, talked to Paul Schrader about it. And so Springsteen in return wrote a song for the movie called light of day, which became the new title of the movie, which also is the song that the bar busters play at the end of the film. And it's like their signature song. This movie uh, would have been totally different. And it's wild that to think that Schrader framed Springsteen this movie because Springsteen 
kind of started as a bar band, but was like this hardworking band and everybody, you know, I mean, was like, we're going to book as many shows as we can and not, not be concerned with all this other stuff. Granted, uh, I don't think uh, Springsteen had like a four-year-old kid with him when he was trying to make this success, but I think it would have been a different style movie, or maybe that's why Springsteen turned it down. He kind of looked at this band and was like, you know what? This is like the antithesis of like how I do my band. Nonetheless, it's an interesting movie in Michael J. Fox's career. They tried a couple other attempts to do some darker roles for Michael J. Fox, and it didn't really work. He did this. He did Bright Lights, Big City the following year, where he's like coked out. He also did Casualties of War with Brian De Palma, which was a... which pits him against uh, Sean Penn, and it was a that movie is a really tough watch. Some, you know, it's a tough watch uh, for you know, especially for a Vietnam movie. And after that, I, I, none of those movies were hits, so he kind of went back into his comedic roots and really didn't do any kind of dramatic turns um, after that. But if you are interested or curious and you haven't seen these movies, it's a nice little look into a actor's career who, you know, is mostly known for comedy, trying to see them try their chops at, at a different genre. I think it's always pretty cool when an actor does try to do that so they don't get pigeonholed in something. And, and they might be able, maybe the performances are great, but sometimes it's like if the audience doesn't want to see you like that, then it's going to dictate where your career is going to be successful and where it's not going to be. The fact that these two movies came out the same year, yeah, um, that had to been tough for Michael J. Fox for you know even from a studio standpoint to say like, look, you did a comedy and made a hundred million dollars on a twelve million dollar budget. You made this dark movie with Paul Schrader and like nobody saw it, so it, it had to been tough to kind of balance like, okay, what do I do? You know, do I keep doing comedy or you know do I continue to do try to seek out more mature roles? Yeah, that's like Bill Murray and Ghostbusters and The Razor's Edge. He wanted to try his hand at something more serious, and people were like, no, we don't need to see that, but whatever. People's careers go through evolutions. I do appreciate the fact that Paul Schrader chose Joan Jett, who can play guitar and sing, and Michael J. Fox, who is a guitar player and you know displayed that a little bit in Back to the Future and you know, and also Michael McKean chose people who know how to play instruments. So at least that part of the movie feels like wholly authentic and they do a pretty good job. It was, it was shot mostly in Chicago, but they did shoot some in Cleveland. So the movie does have that industrial look to it. Um, it doesn't look like that, you know, Hey, we're just going to shoot in LA, but it's going to be this, you know, Midwestern industrial town. Um, also blink and you miss it. Uh, very, one of the, rival bands that they go up against uh one of the band members uh really young trent reznor oh that's fun yeah that's a really fun nugget i also love how um movies uh present bands going on tour as if like you're gonna make a lot of money it's always a fun thing that's not really real yeah i swear (laughs) like they go on this tour and at the end of the tour um it's something like 60 dollars that each band member gets I mean, you know, that's, that's generous. <laughs> yeah. But they get the uh, whole van, you know I mean? I, I've, I've mm. been in that van where you're just like, Hey, if, if we break even and this van doesn't break down and I consider it a success. Yes. So I've been there. I understand. Yeah. It's gas money and yeah. food. Well, those are our picks of the week. Two Michael J. Fox movies that came out the same year. This was unplanned. The secret of my success and light of day. Here's your Murray moment. Mm-hmm. 
dig me because I rarely wear underwear, and when I do, it's usually something unusual. I think I need a root canal. I'm sure I need a long, slow root canal. You're gonna come and shake my monkey tree again? Oh, what does that old queen know? She didn't even chill. Okay, this is so structured. Is this hand shot? The flowing robes, the grace, all striking. It's fair to say that two of the biggest actors to dominate the 80s were Billy Murray and Michael J. Fox, but this Murray moment takes us far away from Hollywood, to the world of a sports ball that I only know about because of Bill. A sport that requires concentration, thought, strength, a lot of mind over matter. I'm talking about golf. And it turns out, Bill is somewhat of a special golf buddy to Michael J. Justin and I have both done deep dives into Fox's life, including watching the 2023 documentary about him living with Parkinson's disease. And for those of you who don't know, Parkinson's is a degenerative movement disorder that's caused by a shortage of a chemical that helps the brain communicate with the body. So when I learned that Fox was a late-in-life golfer, a game he took up well after his diagnosis, which sounds like it might be a bit of a challenge to play the game, well, it caused me to start digging. To take up golf in my 40s was ambitious. To do so with Parkinson's disease was delusional. Fox writes in his book, No Time Like the Future, An Optimist Considers Mortality. At this point in his life, there was no hiding his motor skills and physical decline, but the game of golf called to him, especially after caddying for a fellow friend also afflicted with Parkinson's. Each time Fox went to play, he improved more than the time before. Never mind that it could be graded in varying degrees of lousy, Fox wrote, but nevertheless he kept at it, and still does today. This journey into the golf world yielded quite a few friends, including a small group of known scoundrel golfers like the likes of former White House advisor and familiar TV political George Stephanopoulos, actor Jimmy Fallon, and wouldn't you know it, Bill Murray. Fox calls them his uncles and says that it's a disparate band of duffers who have dragged me onto the green glare of the golf courses. They aren't like dads whom you don't want to disappoint, but more like your favorite uncles, the kind who let stuff slide, who sneak you a beer when you're 17. Fox says that the uncles look past his difficulties in playing golf with Parkinson's, noting that golf is hell for everyone, not just him. And Bill has been known to say similar things about the sport. The joy is not in overcoming or defeating it, Fox has said. Instead, it's in surviving it and settling bets at the 19th hole. Fox goes on to say that Billy and the other uncles don't mind if he's a lousy golfer. You just can't be slow. Just keep it moving, he says. I was able to track down a short documentary that Fox did as a companion piece to his 2009 book. It's called The Adventures of an Incurable Optimist, and the documentary follows Fox to different parts of the world to explore ideas of optimism in other cultures and ways of life. It's important to find a friend with a sense of humor, like my friend Bill Murray, he says in the documentary. Their partnership during this segment couldn't be cuter. Fox can really hammer a golf ball like a pro, but his aim is, understandably, well, not so great. It really is exhilarating to play with you, Bill says. It's just the excitement to see where could this ball go? More than anyone I've ever played with. The range of your shots? I mean, I've just never seen anyone hit a ball so well and miss it so completely, Bill said. 
it's humor like this that Fox needs in his life when living with Parkinson's. And along with Bill and the rest of Fox's uncles, um, his family certainly in this this documentary shows a lot of uh, joke making and, and things to make light of what Fox has to deal with with having Parkinson's. While the two friends enjoy a hot dog break between holes, Fox brings it back into focus. I think that's another key to my optimism, not getting too hung up on the problems. It's okay to be striving, because I'm just not there yet. Centering it on golf, Bill says, What you hope for is that if you just don't quit, that you can make a good shot. That every third shot, you know? And Fox responds, It's like just do the next right thing, and hopefully something will happen. I'm going to write that one down. I like that, Bill said. The next right thing. I've discovered it's not about winning, it's about accepting yourself, even when you screw up, Fox says to Bill. I think that's where the hope comes from. If I could do everything, then there would be no reason for hope. And there's something in the hope that's even more powerful than the realization of whatever the hope is for. Do the next right thing, Bill says back to Fox, as opposed to do the next thing right. The optimism isn't necessarily about great results, it's that you're going to come back and try it again. I like the sentiment of uh, Bill Murray giving advice to Michael J. Fox, Mm -hmm. who's also given so much people comedic joy, you know, that these two can have a little bonding moment. Yeah, I had no idea, actually. This was a little facet of Bill Murray I didn't know about. Have they ever done a movie together? They have not, no. What sent me down this rabbit hole was when Fox's documentary came out, I saw that Bill was at the premiere. I'm like, that's interesting. I mean... He doesn't really go out to a lot of things and then started digging and saw that Bill donates to his Parkinson's foundation. And I'm like, okay, there's a friendship here that I, I got to find out about. Well, thanks for that Murray moment. Of course. Nice job. Oh, thank you. Finding it out. Well, before we wrap things up, we've got a couple final thoughts on Teen Wolf. Uh, one thing I just want to say is that uh, normally I, I do my best, my homework to try to watch Everything that's all-encompassing of a movie. Um, there is a television series called Teen Wolf. I didn't even get to watch one part of the TV series before we came into recording this episode. So I apologize if you're a big fan of the TV series. As far as I know, it's kind of its own thing. They just took the name, but I could be wrong here. I know you didn't get a chance to check it out either. I did not, but I did mention Teen Wolf to someone that I work with who's almost 20 years younger than me. And she said, no, I, ha- I still haven't seen that TV show. Like, it wasn't, uh, it was a movie first, but okay. It kind of looked like, um, I didn't, I saw like an advertisement, like a picture for yeah. it. Well, I looked it up on Google and it seems similar to like a Vampire Diaries type yeah. thing where they're like, we're going to make all the characters young and hot and, you know, it's going to be a sexy show, not like a goofy comedy yeah. like Teen Wolf. But a yeah. couple final thoughts. Um, I always love this kind of stuff. Uh, and we always stumble upon it whenever we're doing episodes, uh, doing our research of things that uh, audiences misunderstood or mistook that the writers, you know, and retrospectively talk about like, oh, we didn't think that the audience would take it this way or we wrote one thing this way or something ended up being funny that wasn't or vice versa. Yeah. Um, we talked a little bit about that in the American Psycho episode. And this one, uh, the writer said, you know, there was a couple of things in this movie that uh, audiences misunderstood something or they thought they saw something on screen that actually wasn't there. It was like the way the image was cropped. So you uh, take it away and (laughs) tell me a little bit about that. Well, sure. I mean, I love to talk about uh, uh, things relating to dicks in movies. Um, 
So if you watch the end of the movie, and I, I, I don't know how well known this is, or, you know, I don't know if it's a, a Little Mermaid thing where, you know, you see a penis on the cover. Like, that one seems to be pretty popular. But this one, um, you can see when the credits start to roll at the end of Teen Wolf, someone uh, that looks like their penis is out of their pants and they realize it. Or, or maybe it was out intentionally and then start, you know, feverishly. Like, a, like an extra that was yeah. in the bleachers. Yeah. yeah. Um, start feverishly trying to zip up their pants, right? And when you see it, the way that the movie's cropped uh, for widescreen, it, it kind of looks like it. But um, if you were to actually see the um, entire framing of that without it being cropped, it's actually a woman. And it's, it's just a, an optical illusion. <laughs> One more uh, dick-related thing in Teen Wolf. Um, it always sticks out to me when Styles kind of says like a, a joke back to Michael J. Fox about somebody sticking their dick in a vacuum cleaner. Like that joke just doesn't, I mean, it's, it's funny, but it just doesn't, it sticks out. But if you're like me and thought that that stuck out too, know that Jeff wrote that line because Matthew, the other writer, it was a true story that he had heard about, so... I think that dick in a vacuum cleaner is something that has persisted throughout movies as as a joke. Well, I feel like was a scary movie borrowed that, the Dewey character. Good God, yeah. yeah. And it, maybe it existed before Teen Wolf, yeah. too. And talking about uh, the writer saying something that audiences misunderstood in the movie, and it's totally something that I have always thought, too, is when the bully says to Michael J. Fox, like, I blew your mom's head off with a shotgun when they're in the bowling alley scene yeah yeah and he's like she was in the chicken coop and uh he's he's so mad well you know he he plays it so menacing um and because we don't see michael j fox's mom um like is that yeah it was like oh has he always known that his family was uh werewolves and michael j fox gets so upset by it too and that was just something that the writers put in to just create a little conflict it he was just making up stuff it didn't you know the bully was just kind of riffing he didn't actually do that but the audiences took it as like oh there's this deeper connection between these two and i always thought that too and so i was he uh did not kill his mom according to the writers it's just because it's not funny you know like it's not even something that's absurd it's like you just don't say i blew her head off with a shotgun like that's not Never going to get a laugh, really. Strange. Yeah. Well, that's all for Teen Wolf. Thank you so much for tuning in. Um, As always, we'll have a new episode coming up next month. We're going into our favorite month, our favorite holiday, October, Halloween. Um, Usually we load up October with double episodes of horror movies. Um, We finally came to the conclusion this year, after four or five years of doing this, that we try to pack so much into the podcast for October that we actually don't get to enjoy the month ourselves because we're trying to get episodes out. So we're giving ourselves some more time. So we're only going to do one episode for October, and that'll be Sam Raimi's Evil Dead 2. Um, As you know, we did Evil Dead 1 uh, a few years ago, and since then, that has been our highest rated episode. It's our most viewed episode on YouTube, and so, and we love Evil Dead 2, so we're like, you know, it makes sense. Let's do Evil Dead 2. But don't worry, in December, we're going to get back to horror, and we're going to be doing the 50th anniversary of The Exorcist, as well as a tribute to the late and great 
William Freakin, who passed not too long ago. So lots of stuff coming up. Until next time, I'm Justin Johnson. And I'm Lindsay Reaper. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you, guys.